0: chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus is going through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples picked some heads of wheat and rubbed them in their hands and ate them. But some of the Pharisees said, why are you doing what is against the law on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, haven't you read what David did when he was with his companions and hungry? Before I go into that scene, let's talk about what's happening. So they're going down the road, and they're hungry. So they kind of just reach into the fields and grab some grain heads and pluck them off. And, of course, the chaff and the grain is there. And you would just kind of let it grind it to, uh, like rub it together between your hands. And it would break the grain down. And the chaff and the grain would fall apart. And then you'd kind of pick the chaff out. And then they would push the even harder. And you could actually roll it into these little dough balls. Now, this is where you're like, uh because the moisture and the sweat from your hands is what adds water to the grain that's being grinded and gives it that little dough ball and you can eat it. But remember, they don't know anything about bacteria and germ-phobic and all that kind of stuff in the ancient world. And a little bit of dirt is good for the immune system. So, And it is your own sweat, after all. It was already in your body. There's nothing wrong with putting it back in. I remember when my daughters were picking their noses and eating it, and we were like, oh. And we told the pediatrician, he's like, okay that's really good for their immune system and we're like no you're not supposed to say that you're the doctor you didn't have a problem with that he's like obviously a certain age it's not socially acceptable and you shouldn't do it but really they're just boosting their immune system and i was like what medical school did you go to but but he's right there's nothing wrong when you take your own thing out of your body and put it back in as long as it's not cancer there wouldn't be a huge problem so they're eating this now In the law, God said that you are now allowed to harvest the corners of the field and the edges of the field. You are to leave it for the poor. Now, obviously, a bunch of disciples following Jesus definitely qualify for the poor. So they're hungry. But also the law said that if anybody's hungry and they're on the road and they don't have in their food, they have the right to reach in and grab whatever they can. They're not allowed to step into the field and just go around and bundle up, but they can reach in and grab. And so what they're doing, according to the law, there's nothing wrong here. Now, the law did say you're not allowed to work. You're not allowed to harvest on the Sabbath. But remember, this isn't really harvesting. The law never really clearly defined what harvesting was, probably because the law didn't think that it would have to define it to that specific um, specificness. The Pharisees were the ones who came along and added more. So I'll give you an example of how it works. My kids, we have our front yard with a driveway in between that, and we then have the sidewalk, and then you have that little strip of grass, and then you have the street. Now, obviously the rule is you cannot play in the street because that's death. And I don't want our kids to die because I'm a good father. The danger is the street. But we've said you're not allowed even in that little strip of grass between the street and the sidewalk. Now, technically, that's not dangerous. Technically, that's just me being legalistic, if you really want to look at it that way. But what it is, is, is a buffer zone. Because we all know how incredibly alert and aware of the surroundings that kids are and what their bodies are actually doing all the time. No, they don't. So we know that they lose train of thoughts. They have no control of their bodies and they're completely oblivious most of the time. My favorite is when we tell them, are those your socks that you need to pick up? And it's right in front, of them. they're like, what socks? I don't see socks. <laughs> or when they're like walking through the living room, they trip over you and you're like, why did you trip over me? I didn't see you there. What? <laughs> this is kids. So this, the grass becomes a buffer zone for their kidness. And it protects them so that if they lose their train of thought or their awareness or they trip and fall, they're only in the grass. But there are consequences for going in that grass. Because if I don't enforce the consequences on that, then they'll just push the envelope into the street. This is what the Pharisees did. They realized, like, okay, what is work? You can't, well, technically, scientifically, work is when you move one object from one place to the other. So technically, moving your hand up and down is actually work. So is that what God meant by do not work on the Sabbath? I mean, we can push this to extremes here. Like even blinking is working. Okay, I know people that actually blinking is incredibly difficult for them physically. So are they working on the Sabbath? So, I mean, really, how far do you want to push this? So that's what they tried to figure out. So they decided like, okay... Everybody lives within a mile or so of the synagogue or they have family members within a mile of the synagogue. So by Friday, you should be within a mile of the synagogue staying with somebody or in your house. And so you can walk one mile to the synagogue, but if you walk two miles, that's work. And you violate the law. Any kind of harvest is violation of the law. You can tie two knots, one sandal and the other sandal, but you can't tie three knots. That's work. And they just start making And they had good intentions at first. They were creating buffers. The problem is, there's nothing wrong with buffers. The problem is when you begin to elevate your buffers equal to that of the law of God. And over generations, that's what began to happen. Their laws were seen as equal. My favorite one is modern-day Israel. They have these Shabbat elevators. And Shabbat elevators are elevators that you're not allowed to push the buttons on the elevator because that's work. (gasps) What they do is they stop at every single floor on the way up and every single floor on the way down. And you do not push any buttons. They don't even work on Shabbat. They just all freeze up. And some hotels, some, the bigger ones, have non-Shabbat elevators for all of us heathen Gentiles. <laughs> but because of the small hotels we stayed in, no, 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 no. And we were like on the 20th floor. And it was like, dun, dun, dun. <laughs> Those days we took the steps. But after a very long day of walking for seven hours in non American friendly handicapped territories, paved roads in Israel, you kind of don't want to do the steps at the end of the day. But here's the thing you will see people on Shabbat lugging these heavy suitcases and dragging them and carrying them and going, oh, oh, and they'll go into the elevator. But I'm not pushing the button. That's a violation of the law. And so everything's kind of arbitrary here. It's basically whatever they've decided. And this is what they're angry at. They're not angry that they really violated God's law. They're angry that they violated their understanding of the law. And what a lot of these dialogues between Jesus and them is really going to come down to who has the authority to interpret Scripture. That is the real battle. The real battle here is who has the correct interpretation. And so Jesus made it very clear that I'm the new. And the new is not compatible with the old. And so from this point on, it's going to become a battle of the old and the new on the interpretation of the scriptures. We know that he is the word, so no contest. But they don't embrace that. So it is a contest for them. So they're angry. So what is Jesus going to do? He's going to school them. Big time. He's going to take their understanding of theology over here and then turn it into this passage and say, what? My favorite schooling that Jesus does is when he gets to Jerusalem. And he's in the temple the week before his crucifixion. We'll get to that much later, but they schools us. So he says this He goes back to 2 Samuel chapter 21. And there's a story of David. David's on the run. He has just finally come to the conclusion that Saul is really trying to kill him. He's convinced Jonathan, Saul's son, that his dad is trying to kill David. And so he's on the run. But he fled for his life so quickly that he has no weapons to protect himself. He has no clothing except for what he's wearing. He has no food. So he comes to the priest and he comes in the temple, the tabernacle, and he says, He lies. He says, my men and I are on a secret message mission from Saul. We have no food. Will you give it to me? Now, the only food that the priest has is the table of showbread. So every, um, every week they would bake 12 loaves of bread without yeast, and they would stack them up on this table, which represents the provision of God in the wilderness. And at the end of the week, the priest would eat it, and then they would bake 12 loaves, and they would send them out for a week. And it's a table of showbread. And it was a constant physical reminder of God's provision for them. But the law made it very clear that only the priests were allowed to eat the bread. So David says, I'm hungry. And the priest basically realizes this is a legitimate need. He's starving. He needs food. So he says, well, as long as your men are keeping themselves from sexual um, abundance, um, in war. Now, it was not uncommon for you to pay your soldiers with plundering and rape after they won the war. And says, so says, look, if that's how you're fighting wars, no, no, no. You're not sacred. You're not sanctified enough to be able to eat this bread. But David says, no, no, no. My men have never done that. I've never let my men do that, and they're definitely not doing it now. Of course, he's right, because he doesn't have any men with him. So the priest gives them the bread to eat. Every Pharisee, every rabbi taught that that was okay. Because the ultimate law is only two commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your life and all your everything. And then love your neighbor as yourself. The heart of the law was love those who are in need. Love anyone, whether they're in need or not. And so the priest understood that the law is love. And he was there in need, and so he gave him the bread. And so in that way, he's meeting the requirements of the law. And he got that the requirements of the law should not get in the way of loving people. Because then the law, because this is where the law has its limits. It has its limits. It cannot deal with every exception in life that there is. Because it's only 10 commandments. And it's only 316 examples of how to live that out. But we all know that there are way more than 316 scenarios in life. And we know that some scenarios get really complicated when you're trying to figure out people's lives and how to do the right thing. And so the priest goes that way. So Jesus says this, Having you read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? How he entered the house of God and took and ate the sacred bread, which is not lawful for any to eat. And the priest alone and gave it to his companions. And then he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what Jesus is basically saying is, why are you okay with David, who is not a priest, who violates the technicality of the law on one end, to eat the bread because he's starving, which is an adherence to the law on the other end? But then my disciples who are poor and hungry and have nothing to eat right now, just pick a handful of grain out of someone's field that is not even sacred bread of the priest, and you flip out like it's a violation of law and should be punished. You have to consistently apply the law. And yes there are different scenarios and different cases but the heart of the law is love for those who are in need. To abstain from the grain when they are starving, that's oppression. And I have come to release. The law has come to release. The law has come to give life. The law is love. And this is not release this is not life and you are definitely not going about it in love and that's the point that he makes you have adopted this theological view here but you cannot apply it to a very similar situation this is actually less sacred than the first situation and he schools them and they have no answer to it but then he digs the dagger in with the comment but then he decides to twist it and move it around. Because then he says, you want, you want something to be angry about? I'll give you something angry about. Now I'm not saying that he's really thinking this way. Maybe he is. I don't know. But he says, the, the son of man is the Lord of the Sabbath. Now, what does he mean here? By calling himself the son of man, he's saying that I am the sinless God, man. Now already, they're going to be like, ah, only God is God. And man is not God. And you are not sinless because only God is without sin. So that theological statement right there is going to blow their mind and make them upset and all that kind of stuff. But then he says, Lord of the Sabbath. Now you have to understand, the only person's Lord of the Sabbath is God. What does this mean? The Sabbath has two roles in the Bible. First, at the end of creation, God created, and on the seventh day, he rested. And he entered in creation and he enjoyed it. And so the Sabbath becomes a symbol of God's creation and creation being complete and God being a part of creation. And he is the one who established the Sabbath. This is not the theological point that the Sabbath in Genesis 1, chapter 1 is making. And they have not maybe completely and fully embraced this universally at this time in Jesus' life. But within about 100 years... Kabbalah is really going to start coming in. Not not Kabbalah, the religion, but the ideas that are going to lead to Kabbalah. And at this time, a lot of the Pharisees are actually starting to develop this idea that the law might actually be greater than God. And that before God, there was the law. Or the law and God are eternal together. Because even God obeyed the Sabbath. And even God rested. And therefore, a, if you want to push it really hard, one could say that the law coexists with God. Now that is a pretty universal thought among Kabbalists or the Hasidim, the, the Orthodox Jews that you see with the black hats the, earlier today. And the roots of that thinking start somewhere around after Ez, between Ezra and Nehemiah and Jesus. How fully developed and how universal that is at this point in the Gospels, we don't really know. But we know that it's there somewhere. And that the infant seedling ideas are there. And so what they have a problem with is even God obeys the Sabbath. The second thing that the Sabbath does is the Sabbath is a sign of the Mosaic Covenant. The Mosaic Covenant is the law. And the sign that God gave every covenant had a sign, was the Mosaic Covenant. So if you violate the sign, then you're violating the entire covenant. It'd be like if I took my wedding ring off and just threw it on the ground. That would be symbolic of a total violation of my entire marriage altogether, the entire concept of my marriage and who my wife is and what she means to me. And I don't have to break every single law and every single promise that I've ever made in my marriage or that God requires of me. All I have to do is take the the, the covenant sign off and throw it on the ground and That's way worse than, well, I'm not going to say it's way worse, but it has a a very intense message of how I really feel about the incomplete package of my marriage. And to abuse the sign of the covenant is to abuse the entire covenant. What Jesus is saying is, I'm Lord of creation and Lord of the Mosaic covenant. If I'm Lord of the Sabbath, then I'm Lord of creation. I'm the one that put Sabbath in place at creation. I'm the one that put the Mosaic Covenant in place. I'm the one that gave the sign. Therefore, I can do anything I want with it because I'm the author of it. God doesn't contradict himself, but God has a better understanding what all this really means than the Pharisees. And basically what he's saying is, I am a greater authority and a greater interpretation of all this stuff than you because basically before you, I am. Like I said, did Jesus ever say, I am God? No, but my goodness, you have, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God, I'm God all over this thing. And they know that. And this is going to make them angry. But they don't know how to refute this. They don't know how to refute it. So basically what he's saying is, I have the authority to interpret scripture. And I'm Lord of it all. This is a powerful theological statement. And this sets the tone from this point on. This isn't something Jesus gradually grew into. This isn't something that they gradually began to understand over a long period of time and then hit it They're like, oh my gosh, this is what he's claiming. Let's crucify him. Th- this is month one. He has made it very clear, clear who he's claiming to be. He has made it very clear to them without any misunderstanding what he is. They know exactly what he's claiming. They hate him. And it will not grow. It will, the, the, their hatred, their theological arguments against him will not grow over time. Their plan to kill him will grow over time. And that's important to understand. Now remember, technically this isn't a violation of the Sabbath in any way. Because remember, the whole point of the Sabbath is resting with God. The whole point of the Sabbath is you're, you're moving out of your life everything that gets in the way of you resting God. We have so many things that vie for our attention. Um, our work, our hobbies, our entertainment, our worries, our to-do lists, everything. We go on vacations and many people still just think about all the things they have to do and try to get things done, that kind of stuff. There are so many things that vie for our attention. There, At the same time, all these things vie for our allegiance, where we want to pledge our allegiance to them greater than God. And at the same time, these things vie to be our answer our solution, our completion, our, our rest, that we will find our rest or our comfort in this idolatry, that it will solve our problems. The whole point of the Sabbath is not just technically ceasing from work, because how does one define that? Re- Sabbath is ceasing from the things that replace God and resting in Him and being reminded that He is our only true comfort. He is our only true solution. He is our only true rest. He is our only true problem solver. He is our only true life. He is our only true hope. For me, I don't like gardening. Gardening is miserable, in my opinion. I'd rather go build something in the garage than garden, okay? It's miserable. So for me to go out and garden, that's not a Sabbath rest it's going to be frustrating. It's distracting. I'm not going to commune with God, but I have a friend who works with JP Morgan and he's a, um, a IR, not IRS, but he's a financial guy in JP Morgan. And for him, gardening is very therapeutic. And for him, his Sabbath rest is gardening. He goes out in the garden and his mind is connected with God. And he's re-root because he's in the cubicle doing with numbers and dealing with all these kind of stuff. And And that's distracting for him. And so he gets in the garden, and it, it becomes his rest. For me, it's not. And this is where we have to come together as a community and ask, what does rest look like? Not some universal rule that we will imprint on everybody, but an accountability partner that says, is this really truly providing rest? And if so, then God bless you. Because if you come away reminded who God really is and that he is your only really true life, then that's rest. If you come away even more stressed and more taxed and more idolatrous, that's not rest. And this is the point that Jesus is making. What better rest than to watch me as God enter into people's lives and restore them? To bring them comfort to bring them release, to bring them life. You have a front row seat to God bringing life to people. What better thing to remind you of the absolute sovereignty and our absolute need and the only solution to our problems that God is than to watch God enter into people's lives and bring life. And this is the point that Jesus is saying is, it's not that I'm going to contradict myself and do away with the Sabbath and do whatever I want and go out partying and all this kind of stuff. It's just I'm the one who can correctly interpret it. And I'm telling you that me bringing life to people in the Sabbath is the Sabbath. And it's not work for me because I'm God. And that's the point that God Jesus is making. This is what he means by the bridegroom is here. You are watching God and that is going to give you Rest. That is the point that God is going to make through all these things. So another Sabbath, Jesus is going to show them rest. Chapter 6, verse 6. And another Sabbath, Jesus just loves doing things on the Sabbath. Jesus entered the synagogue and was teaching. And now a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the experts in the law saw, and the Pharisees watched Jesus closely to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. They're just like, okay, here it comes. This is another like document that we can put or another like documentation that we can put on. He broke this. It's like in, in kindergarten where they're going to make you move your, your clip up into the red. Okay, further up. Oh, we or just watch him. And as he violates it, we'll say, Jesus, go and move your clip up higher into the red. If you get really close to the red, we will call your dad. And let him know what's going on. So... They're watching him. They're just waiting for him. And actually, at this point, they're probably like, they can't wait. Because the more he violates it, the more fodder they have for crucifying him. That's sadistic. So that they could find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, I am God, and said to the man who had withered hand, get up and stand here. So he rose and stood there, and then Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? Now that's a trick question. Uh, To save life or destroy it. After looking around at them, all said to the man, Stretch out your hand. Looking around them, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man did so, and his hand was restored. But they were filled with mindless rage. That's quite a description. They're not angry. They're not peeved. They are mindless rage. They c- cannot think. And In psychology and in therapy, this is called emotional flooding. And it's like a, a, ga- um, a lawnmower or something like that, where you just keep trying to start it over and over and over again, and you begin to feel, fill the carburetor and everything with so much gas that it becomes so flooded that you can't start it. No matter how much you try, you're not going to start it. You have to let it rust and let everything flood. And this is like when your kids are like emotional and angry or crying or you're emotional angry and you're like, let's have a logical con- conversation about why you're doing this is inappropriate. They can't hear anything you're talking about. They can't process anything. They're emotionally flooded and all they hear is you're going, nah, 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 nah. and it doesn't matter whether they're sad and crying. It doesn't matter whether they're angry and mad. The best thing you've got to do is just hold them and let them rest and let the gasoline go out of everything. And then you can have a conversation. And so the Pharisees are emotionally flooded with rage. Grown men, grown leaders. Now, I'm not saying it's wrong for grown men and grown women to become emotionally flooded because there's nothing wrong with emotions. But this is going to happen a lot with Jesus. And that's when it becomes... A lack of maturity. A lack of maturity. Yes? For me, I, I find it... Great question. So the question is, like, if we saw this kind of stuff, or miracles and stuff, and some people are seeing this, and they're dropping to their knees in awe and wow by these miracles, and we would hope that we would do the same thing if this was in our life, yet they're responding with rage and they hate this. Like how? Here's the thing. Now, I don't know the perfect answer to this, but it's threatening their power base. For the everyday normal person, they have no power. They're the powerless. And when the powerless see things like this, they're wowed. And they want to be saved. For those who have power, they're angry. And we can see that on the news right now. Okay, I'm not going to mention anything specific because I don't want to go into political things here. But there are a lot of people that are fighting for their freedoms, and right now the people in power are enraged because this is a threat to their power base. They don't like people being free. Free people means less power for them. People who are going to Jesus means less power for the Pharisees. And when it really comes down to the end of life, they're not killing Jesus because they really truly believe that he's of the devil or that he's not legitimately from God. They're killing him because what they have is very comfortable. They have a power base. They have control over people. They have made a lot of money off of this. They have become very comfortable off of this. And if they accept Jesus, well, my goodness, he'll tell us to leave everything behind. And that's the real threat. That's the real anger. It's very convenient than an argue. He's a blasphemer. He's a violation of the law. You see, when people in power come up with reasons for why you're wrong, they're not rational. That's not the real reasons. The real reasons are they don't want to lose their power base but they can't just come out and say, I love controlling and oppressing you and I've made a very good life off of that and this is really threatening that and making me angry as a spoiled little brat who was never told no by my parents and now I'm not getting what I want. So what I'll really do is I'll come up with very convenient laws of why this is not not constitutional and it's not this and it's not that and it's not that. And then I can shame you because you're unpatriotic. That's what it really comes down to. Sorry if I stepped on your toes, anybody. but, And I don't mean that like, I mean that genuinely. Like, if you have different views, I respect that. And I would love to have dialogue. So I don't want to say this in a flippant kind of a way, if you have a different view. Um, but it, I still think whether you disagree with me or not, it's still a great example. Have you ever seen What About Bob, yeah. Richard Dreyfus, and um, um, Bill Murray? It's a great movie. You've got to watch it. But whenever I think of this, they were filled with rage. Do you remember when, like, Bob is just, like, they've hit the peak of absolute annoyance with Richard Dreyfus, Dr. Leo Marvin. And Dr. Leo Marvin has put Bob in the car, and he's driving away because he's trying to get him as far away from his family vacation as he possibly can. And one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie is where Bob just, like, the, the straw breaks the camel's back when they're in the car. And finally, he cannot deal with Bob anymore. And he gets out of the car. And he's like really roughly just like walking. He walks around the car. I can't remember front and back, but it doesn't matter. And he opens up the door. And he's so angry. He says, get out of the car. But he's so flooded with mindless rage that he can't say it right. And he just literally goes, get out of the car! <laughs> and it's like... That's the scene that pops into my mind when I think of this mindless rage. It's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. It's just like, That's rage. That's rage. When you cannot talk correctly, you're angry. And this is what is filling them. So the point is, this is life. I'm healing them because this is life.